I had this very specific way that I wanted to shoot um, based on my kind of adoration of Robert Alt and knowing his preferred way of working and specifically in Gosford Park, which, which shared some of the, I hope, kind of satirical parallels with our film. This idea that all the actors were kind of on all the time, everybody's mic'd all the time, and the cameras can find you any time. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Aria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here once again with our co-host, Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro. In this week's episode, we've got a feature interview with Mark Mylod, the director of the upcoming Searchlight Pictures release, The Menu. And in our new segment, we will be going over the final box office forecast for the opening weekend of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, as well as going over some details and news going around the world of theatrical exhibition. Sean, Rebecca, welcome once again. I hope your weekend was better than mine. Yeah, I would I would hate to be a Phillies fan in Philly when the, the Phillies <laughs> lost the World Series. I don't know if I would wish that on Oh, did anybody. that happen? I, did that happen this weekend? I, I, think, don't, I, might, I think we need our we need our lap to gloat here after after That's last fine. week, Daniel. That's fine. But it did hurt. And uh, we're going from a, a very stressful uh World Series. And now you're, you've got the NFL heating up. You've got the World Cup about to start. Sean, it's going to be a lot of competition for movies hitting theaters in the world of sports this month of November. And I say that because before we get into that part of the conversation, we've got a huge movie opening this weekend with the release of Disney's Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Guys, there's so many dimensions around this movie. But let's start with Sean talking about that opening weekend forecast, because that's the one thing that our partners here in Exhibition are really questioning. Where is this movie going to fall? Days out from the opening, Sean, what's your range for this title? I think at this point, to me, you know, on the bottom end, 170 feels like a safe zone. And that that's really kind of baking in maybe some expectation of the long runtime playing a factor as well as we're still waiting to see what critics reviews really are. We've seen social media reactions, but we can really get a a better gauge on that audience potential because kind of what happened with Dr. Strange was that movie had $200 million opening potential. And within days of its release, reviews were not so great, at least not on typical Marvel upper echelon levels. So I, I think 170 though for Black Panther, considering all the factors going in, it's selling extremely well. Veterans Day is on Friday. That should boost some attendance with some schools out. Uh, we'll see where it goes from there. It really doesn't have a lot of competition. The first movie came out of nowhere and just blew away expectations. I would not rule out $200 million. I'm definitely on the bullish end of our 170 to 200-ish range. Now, Sean, of course, uh, Black Panther is the only film coming out in in one release this weekend because who else would want to compete with it? Um, That said, I mean, (laughs) we have Spielberg's The Fableman's coming out. We have, you know, a few counter-programming options. Of the other films coming out this weekend, do you see any potential breakthrough or is it just going to be wall-to-wall Black Panther Wakanda forever in terms of box office? For the most part, I I would say probably wall-to-wall Black Panther. The Fableman's is is the one exception. I would expect it to do pretty well in its its platform release. Uh, Let's let's kind of look at recent films that have attempted a similar pattern. We've had a number of them in recent weeks from Armageddon Time, Banshees of Inisherin, Tatar, several others. 
Till, I would include that as well. They've all basically opened in a similar range depending on the number of locations. The Fable Men's already has plenty of Oscar buzz, so I would expect it to stand out with prestige crowds this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting weekend, even as we see what we have from the holdover perspective. Last weekend, we had another repeat number one finish for Dwayne The Rock Johnson's Black Adam, which hit $18.2 million and its third weekend in release in North America. That movie is now up to $137 million. An anime title in second place with $9.3 million. That's One Piece Film Red. That's another solid opening weekend for anime titles. And from then on, really, it's been uh, no huge overperformers. Sean, from your perspective... What can the holdovers bring to the market this weekend? They were important. I, I even look at something like Ticket to Paradise, which was only off 13%. That movie has really found its footing with adults. I think it will continue to do that through the holidays, especially Thanksgiving. That's that's exactly the kind of movie that I would expect to continue playing well. Even Smile after Halloween, only down about 27%. That really just speaks to how well that movie is connecting with horror fans. So even though we're we're still not quite seeing those those grosses and then particularly the number of releases hit pre-pandemic levels, we are seeing the staying power and we're getting more and more of these releases as we go into the holidays and early next year. So this is still encouraging to me, even though we can't quite talk about pre-COVID levels just yet. A movie like Smile is going to be hitting 100 million domestic coming into its seventh weekend here in North America. That was a movie originally destined for Paramount+. Plus. That is also a movie that's crossed the 200 million mark worldwide. We're seeing the results of movies, even original IPs, that can work with an audience benefiting from that theatrical release. Absolutely. And we, we're just going to continue seeing more of those types of releases. This is really the latest in line. You know, we compared it to the Black Phone before Smile came out. And I think we'll continue to see the horror genre especially really flourish as we go into the new year. A lot of releases on the slate. And as we're talking about that theatrical experience, uh, another release that was streaming only this weekend, uh, the Weird Al Yankovic story. What was the what was the title of this movie with with Daniel Radcliffe playing a Weird Al Yankovic? Do you, you guys remember? Weird, the Al Yankovic story. That movie opened in Roku, which is a streaming device that also has its own channel. I couldn't find it. Uh, did any of you guys have any luck? finding this movie that could potentially have performed in theaters. Honestly, I didn't even realize it had come out, and I was a huge Weird Al Yankovic fan in high school. Yeah. It kind of passed me by. <laughs> I had honestly only known that it was out this weekend because I kept hearing good reviews for it, which piqued my interest because, I like Rebecca, I'm already, already a Weird Al fan. I did find it, but only on the Roku channel. And I was going to watch that one night and decided not to because I couldn't find a way to watch it without ads. And oh, so it's just like a straight-up TV movie. Is the way they're essentially, it up. yeah. This is like wow. classic 1990s TV movie style. You have to watch about 15 minutes of ads. To their credit, I don't remember any of the ads repeating throughout the movie. So you know, I guess that's glass half full. That's but, uh, it's a low uh, bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the movie itself, I loved it, and you know, so there was a positive takeaway there. But it was a little frustrating at first because I'm one of those people I'm willing to pay for content if it means no ads because it pays people that made the movie and it gives me a benefit of being able to watch the movie without a break if I want to. And I'm so curious as to how that's going to change now that Netflix is introducing its ad tier in several countries around the world, including the United States in the coming weeks. That just might be uh, a new paradigm here when we talk about home entertainment, when we talk about these releases 
hitting the home at the same time in theaters. If you want to watch it with ads at an okay price, you can do it at home. Good luck. But having that uninterrupted experience, it looks like folks are going to have to pay that premium, like you mentioned, Sean, at home or slightly more to see it in a theater. Uh, we'll see how that evolves. But I, I completely agree with you guys. I'm really surprised and disappointed that a new movie that has a built-in fan base is only available with watching 15 minutes worth of ads. Seems like a waste of effort. And talking about forward-looking numbers, we've got the latest in the quarterly reports in exhibition. Rebecca Polly will be giving us the latest updates from Cinemark's Q3 results right after this break. But before that, Sean, thank you so much for joining us this week once again. Thank you both. And we're back here on the Box Office Podcast with Rebecca Polly talking about the news that happened this week in the world of exhibition. Rebecca, we had the Q3 earnings call from Cinemark. What were some of the big highlights there? It's pretty standard from what we've been seeing this year from other companies, uh, a little bit good, a little bit bad. Um, as you know, this is the time of year when all those Q3 earnings calls are happening. So we'll be uh, catching up with kind of the bulk of them, including Disney and Warner Brothers and, and some of the distributors on next week's episode of the podcast. But as for Cinemark, they had third quarter earnings of $650.4 million, which is about 50% up from what third quarter earnings were in 2021 down about 12% from the second quarter of this year. And I, I mean, there's a there's a quote here from Sean Gamble, uh, CEO of the company, uh, that really kind of, I think, sums it up pretty well, that, uh, quote, Cinemark's performance during the third quarter underscores that our strategies to navigate a highly fluid environment with regard to content, supply chain, and labor dynamics are working. Uh, yeah, highly fluid environment is about where we're standing right now with, I mean, like you're saying, films going to streaming when they could have had uh, built-in fan bases. And then on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, films like Black Adam overperforming, things like Ticket to Paradise, as Sean predicted, uh, having really good legs. So it's, uh, you know, I, I definitely got a weathering the storm kind of impression from uh, from from the starting toddler, maybe weathering the squall. Weathering the squall. Let's let's go with that. That's, that we'll sounds talk- like the most pretentious and obnoxious, like, literary fiction novel title, but. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about surprising results from Cinemark, I don't know if you caught this, Rebecca, this is something that we shared on our social media accounts. The circuit released a national map of the favorite movie theater candy by state at Cinemark Theaters. What is going on in the West Coast of the United States? Red Vines, are you serious? That's the worst one. I mean, to be fair, I also think that uh, that Twizzlers are garbage. Uh, but I would agree with you that, that rope-based or rope-designed candy is always a disappointment. Maybe the best one is the Nerds rope. Have you ever had that? I'd just rather eat Nerds, you know, honestly. I don't think we need to <laughs> invent the want. wheel. Though I, I will say, in terms of, I have candy opinions, you know, the conversion of a, you know, quote-unquote typical traditional candy bar uh, to the movie theater equivalent for me, the standout there is Bunch of Crunch, and 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 that was uh, mm. the highest the highest selling in in many states at Cinemark theaters. So those states, I'm cool with them still. Yeah. But the 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 Red Vines, I man, California. Yeah, I, don't, I don't understand how the how the Red Vines is the number one candy all over the West Coast. The Sweet Tarts Rope, which is the number one candy at Cinemark theaters in Alaska, that's your better 
rope-based candy alternative. When you talk about that uh, candy bar to movie theater candy transition, I'm a big fan of the Reese's Pieces. That only got the number one spot in one of the states. Meanwhile, another one of the states just got plain M&Ms. Everyone else that picked M&Ms got the peanut M&Ms, but God bless them. One plain M&M state. That's wonderful. Cheers, cheers to, to Iowa. Cheers to Iowa repping the classics. You know, I'm, I've, I've been vocal about um, my junior mince love, but it's, it's okay that it didn't pop up at all. But uh, more for me. So everyone else stay away from my junior mince. <laughs> and moving on to other circuit news, on the AMC side of the equation, we are seeing a $5 discount Tuesday promotion being extended through the holiday season at AMC Theaters in North America. That's a great initiative, especially as we're talking about rising prices and premium large format, that AMC is going to its circuit, basically getting one discount day on Tuesday. Most tickets are $5, excluding premium formats, of course, which do have a surcharge. But it's a cool thing to do, especially through January 2023, when this promotion will end. Rebecca, everybody loves a discount day, but I'm not sure enough people know that this is around. Uh, you know, a lot of theaters are doing these sort of initiatives, but and have um, been and have been. I think it'll be interesting to if we can kind of get granular on that data and see what impact this has on what movies. Obviously, the avatars and the Black Panthers of the world are not really going to need any help. Uh, but we saw something like National Cinema Day, where uh, cinemas you know, around the nation and happened in other countries as well, including AMC, had uh, drastically reduced ticket prices. And we did see in particular family films really pick up. So, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about how we can't just rely on tent poles. Ideally, what this will do is help some of those non-tent pole titles uh, keep some keep some holdover action going, you know, lure some families in when they otherwise uh, might have stayed at home watching Weird Al movies on Roku. <laughs> no, it's always a good idea to help uh, titles that aren't built to be blockbusters to have a day where audiences can take a little bit of a risk. And we know that subscription programs help in giving uh, viewers, giving audiences a little bit more confidence in trying out a movie that they might not have regularly gone to. I think the $5 discount Tuesday concept is another great idea in that regard. Yeah, Daniel, there's uh, there's really nothing sexier than a discount. Um, on the other side of the AMC sexiness news of the week, AMC is partnering with Zoom to create Zoom rooms at AMC locations across uh, 2023 and 17 major markets. You know what? It's it's not it's not the the sexiness of a good old discount or a Black Panther release, but we've spoken about the needs uh, need for theaters to diversify and to offer their uh, their auditoriums kind of at off peak times. So yeah, this will be like auditoriums between seventy five and one hundred fifty seats. I mean, I can just speak for our own uh, our own company meetings, Daniel. No offense to any of our bosses who are listening to this, but they would be much improved by popcorn and soda. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially at this point of the Zoom experience. It's a partial answer to a question that we asked at the end of last year. What's going to happen with private rentals? Private rentals came up as one of the biggest innovations, one of the best lifelines economically for theaters during the pandemic. We knew that with audiences coming back, the private rental business was not going to be as important as it was in 2020 and 2021. AMC here doing a partnership with Zoom that could potentially 
give a little bit more life to that uh, private rental business. It'll be interesting to see how other circuits also adapt to extend that potential of private rental auditoriums moving forward. Now that actual movies are coming out and it's not possible to have those like rock bottom discount 2020 prices for private rentals, uh, you know, what's every, everyone's trying to, to crack that nut, I feel like, of, of how to make that uh, affordable and uh, accessible and uh, attractive to customers who maybe want to come in on offbeat times. Though, of course, the number one thing uh, that we would ideally have to uh, create a consistent uh, audience flow into theaters is just more movies, a wider variety of <laughs> movies, um, more specialty movies, more big budget movies. Every kind of movie will take them all. Yeah. And that leads us into the interview segment here in the podcast this week, my interview with the menu director, Mark Mylod, who's had an extensive career both in the movies and on TV. He's directed several episodes of Succession on HBO, one of my favorite shows on, on TV. He's taking a lot of those satirical elements from that show in this upcoming release from Searchlight Pictures coming out next weekend, November 17th, in a film starring Rafe Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. It's looked very interesting based on the trailers alone. I know folks that saw it over at Show East a couple of weeks ago in Miami really enjoyed it, took a lot from it. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing titles like this come into the market and give moviegoers that already went to see Black Panther Wakanda Forever another choice to have fun at the movies. And without any further ado, here is our interview with Mark Millard, the director of Searchlight Pictures, The Menu, coming out to theaters on November 18th. Let's get started, I guess, from the beginning, uh, Mark, because obviously knowing your career, you've been involved in directing uh, satires with a little bit of an edge to them, especially on the TV side of things, but for film as well. I mean, Ali G is essentially a satire in itself, right, um, of society, of media. Um, obviously, Entourage in its own way was a satire of a Hollywood that seems like it was ages ago, but still recognizable. And uh, Succession, of course, uh, from the media side of things. And I can tell you, being a, a business writer here covering the, the media side of things, it's a fantastic satire. Now you're going into a slightly different world here with uh, fine dining and drawing different elements from uh, from finance, from tech. Uh, could you go into your approach in how this came to you, obviously with that background of knowing Adam McKay, having a writer from Succession uh, being involved in the production? Yeah, I, I worked, Will, Will Tracy, the co-writer of the script along with Seth Reese, um, Will and I worked together on an episode of Succession in season two called Turnhaven. It was an episode set with uh, 90% of which was set around a big dinner table um, with, with a lot of people arguing um, and, and a lot of uh, subtext and, and a satirical side to it. Um, and we just loved working together. We had a great time. Um, and uh, a few months later, Will told me about the screenplay and asked me if I'd take a read, which I did, um, and was bowled over, um, first of all, by how much fun it was. Um, and secondly, by just the incredible kind of amount of lovely kind of left field twists and turns that the screenplay took. And, and, and I suppose most importantly for me kind of thinking, oh, could I maybe direct this, was uh, this beautiful blend of tones, a, a really quite unique 
tone, which the best of which I've been able to do so far is kind of a dark comedy thriller satire, I suppose. But which um, um, I'm always terrified that as soon as I say the word satire, that people will think it's very dry, um, and and it is isn't. It's a I hope it's a really fun ride, um, and uh, and and so where we do hope to kind of have a bit of a poke at, uh, at the exclusivity of that world and by extension our society, hopefully, that that, that, that is just part of the ride and part of the fun. Um, so so I went back to, to Will and said, hey, I really like this. I think this and this and this. We started talking before I know it. I'm chatting to Adam, um, uh, to Adam McKay. And before I know it, I'm talking to Searchlight and suddenly, you know, we're making the movie. So we did. I did a pass on the script with the writers, which coincided with the first lockdown in 2020 um so nothing but time to think um and as we came out of that period we started casting and uh Rafe fell into play very quickly um uh, with a lovely zoom call that was the most fun um likewise Anya and um then I started working with uh, with Mary Vernon this brilliant casting director to build out the rest of the cast and um, I had this very specific way that I wanted to shoot um, based on my kind of adoration of Robert Alt and knowing his preferred way of working and specifically in Gosford Park which which shared some of the I hope kind of satirical parallels with our film um, and this uh, this idea that all the actors were kind of on all the time there wasn't a, there wasn't a oh it's your close up now or it's your close up now everybody's on all the time everybody's mic'd all the time and the cameras can find you anytime and that opened up I wanted the the restaurant set that we built down in a in a warehouse down in Savannah in Georgia I wanted that to feel like a real restaurant authenticity is the key to good satire I think mm -hmm. um uh, least my version of it um so we had almost an obsession with authenticity for on every level really um aesthetically in terms of the the, the design and look of the kitchen of the the reality of how the kitchen was staffed all the food that was cooked um and in terms of the uh the performances i wanted it to feel like a dining room so that when you know, okay, if the camera's on this table or that table, that, that there are still conversations happening at the other tables, tables, uh, uh, and I'd be able to work with the sound team to pull out those conversations into the mix. So it meant that those conversations from the actors had to be real all the time. They had to be in character. So I needed a particular a particular type of inter intelligent and bold actor um, who, who would embrace that idea uh, and not be thrown off by it. And, and that's what I got. I got this beautiful uh, company of actors who uh, who would all come on to set together in the morning and basically stay there till we wrapped in the evening. Uh, and we had an absolute blast. It was just an absolute joy working with them. And there was a real sense of uh, of companionship and, and, and mutual support. Um, you know, despite the fact that we were in this, you know, boiling hot old warehouse in the, in the <laughs> middle of um, pandemic, you know, we, we, we did have a lovely time working together. Now, you mentioned Altman, and the way you're talking about the film is, I think, so reflective of that Altman style. You guys share some similarities in your own backgrounds, being active both in television and in cinema. 
And you're talking about your approach and you're mentioning having that sound mix of different conversations sort of being faintly in the background, working with an ensemble cast, kind of like a like a company from, from a theater uh, troupe, and then just putting them in a setting the way Altman would. Could you talk about that Altman connection? Uh, Gosford Park is so interesting, but there's a lot of other titles that you could throw into the mix. How did that Altman DNA come into your uh, your approach to this film? It first started actually with a conversation way back on my first feature, on the Ali G feature. I had this brilliant actors, Michael Gambon and, and, and Charles Charles Dance, um, both of whom had just finished shooting with, with Altman. I, I had recently discovered his work. I was, um, and so I was just, just banging questions at them really about how Robert worked. And, uh, and really that's how I discovered that, um, that the specifics of the way he would work with actors and the way he would give direction and everything. It, I just felt so obvious in the way that brilliant ideas are obvious and that, that they're only obvious once somebody said them. Um, um, so just that, that way of just having everybody alive all the time immediately felt the best way to service those kind of twin aims in my particular sweet spot of, of dramatic tension and comedic tension, which of course is symbiotic. Um, and it, it just seemed a brilliant way of servicing that. So when I looked at Orman's work on MASH or the other or more satirical pieces that, that had that comedic element also, okay, it seemed just a brilliant way to service those twin needs in terms of the storytelling spectrum um, and the tone of the piece with total authenticity as well. And that's what felt so brilliant about it. It felt like it just got to the truth, the, the nub of the matter, that the, the scene that one is trying to explore. And that it just really appealed, I think, partly because also, as you said, there is, I suppose, a theatrical route to that. And when I first left school, I went straight up to the West End and started working backstage, changing changing the scenery um, on, on plays up there, like the Cherry Orchard and the Aspen Papers. And uh, and so I I learned, well, I suppose I learned to love actors by by standing in the wings, watching these brilliant actors um, from the side and just just watching the way that everybody on stage is, a, is attuned and, it, and in the moment and the way that evolves subtly night by night. So I never expect... And I tell the actors this, I never expect them to do the same take twice and I never expect the cameras to do the same thing twice. Um, there's um, each scene, I'll never shoot part of a scene, I'll always shoot a whole scene together. So I, I just love the idea that it takes on a life of its own if everybody is alive to that moment. But um, And sometimes it will go that way and sometimes it will go that way and, and improvisation might take it a different way and probably it'll end up back where we started. But but there's, a, there's an infinite possibility in that way instead of it just being a sense of let's try and describe the fact that we're repeating this scene for the tenth time so that we can get a big close-up right there, that feels emotionally dead to me. Mm -hmm. The idea of everything being alive just um, creates spontaneity and creates life and, and yeah, creates tension, creates comedy, creates everything that I'm interested in watching. And that's a challenge, especially when you set a film around a dinner table. You've got an audience yeah. there. You've got two hours to, to, to push through what, what you want to say. I think back at another filmmaker, uh, Luis Buñuel, being able to do so effectively in films like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Exterminating Angel, sort of taking this approach of how can we make a dinner entertaining? Uh, how can we make it unexpected? Uh, can you talk about that? Because it looks like the screenplay here looks at the different courses of a tasting menu to inform its beats, its rhythms, its twists. Can you go into that challenge uh, as a filmmaker tackling, you know, I've got two hours, 
how, let's make this interesting. Yeah, it's funny you should mention the Exterminator Kenji and Bunuel. That, that was a huge influence for me. I'd watched it years ago, and almost as soon as I read the menu for the first time, I went straight back and watched it again. Um, the thing that I took away, apart from this, one of the... It's such a brilliant film. Um, um, the biggest chunk, I suppose, I took from it was this sense of the, the guests, their, their sense of culpability, really. Um, that's what was... I think unique um, and extraordinary, um, uh, albeit in a much more kind of surrealist um, setup with, with the exterminating angel. But I found that incredibly helpful in, in terms of the arc of the diners in in, in the menu. I, the, we could put them in as stereotypes and, and or archetypes um, in order to support our central, you know, thesis: the duel between uh, Anya and, and Chef's character and that meeting of minds and, and all those satirical and fun elements and, and and the thriller genre elements. But it was much more fun and I think much more rewarding, and I hope thickens the brew of the whole viewing experience um, to, to actually try to take them on that genuine arc, so that by the time we get to the end of the film, there is a sense of recognition of their own part in the whole matrix of our society and the taker society, the, the the exclusivity that they are part of, and that their, their greed for that, and, and the ego that leads into that. Um, that really became the focus of our kind of week long rehearsal. I don't like. To to stand up and rehearse, but I do love to sit around a table with the actors and and talk about those those secondary and tertiary themes. Um, and that we all latched onto that, and because we had the the benefit of it, so much of the film being within the restaurant uh, set, we had the benefit of shooting almost entirely chronologically, um, uh, and that allowed us to calibrate that that journey for those characters in a, in a in quite a precise. And, and, and I hope, you know, enjoyable way. Um, it's interesting what you said about this, you know, we've got those characters essentially in, in, in the one space for two hours. It's a tremendous cinematic challenge in itself. I didn't want the film to feel anything but cinematic and, and alive and kinetic and tense and fun. Um, so there was a, a lot of challenges, you know, part of the rework that I've done, part of the past that I've done of the script was actually to take the cast outside for that, for that kind of external course and, and, and the kind of staged, you know, those stage elements outside um, to, to give us that breath of oxygen before putting them back into that pressure cooker inside this room. And I, in that sense, there was, again, Exterminating Angel was a huge influence on that, as was Parasite and the, the way he did that, extraordinary kind of architectural space um as was misery actually but it was such fun in actually making a real such a brilliant use of claustrophobia in that instance um but that um yeah but that ability to play satire but also connect to the to a large cast was would the, seeing him able to do that was 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 hugely inspiring and you speak about the the cinematic approach, that cinematic focus that you really wanted to imprint in this film. This film is being released in a, in a difficult time, I think, for the theatrical exhibition industry. We're the official publication of the National Association of Theater Owners. So we mainly uh, engage with our readers uh, that are cinema owners, work in cinemas. Can you speak to the importance of being able to come in with original ideas that aren't tied with superheroes or with long-standing IPs and why they remain relevant for the theatrical experience at a time when, as you well know, working with TV as well, it seems like a lot of the conversation is dominated on the small screen. Yeah, it is. It is um, like any filmmaker, I would imagine, 
having grown up with, with such a passion for that shared cinematic experience, you know, particularly for a shared that shared emotional experience, that incredible alchemy of a viewing experience and that 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 only a cinema can provide. And and seeing, I was reading a report that no doubt you're very familiar with um, about the way that audiences have declined over the past decade or so. It's um, it's sad. And and obviously theatre needs to, you know, cinemas need to fight back um, uh, with every tool in the box in the same way that they have throughout the past 100 years. They've always found a way to fight back against television, to fight back against colour television, to fight back against um, whatever's coming in, VHS, whatever it might be. Um, And and it needs to do the same again. I think that obviously we're in an extraordinary time with the global pandemic and, and which makes it even harder. Um, you know, I hope, we all hope that obviously that we will come out of that and a wider audience will be tempted back into. I think when I first went back into the, I think when I went to see Midsommar was the first film I saw back in a cinema um, uh, and I went to see Nope just a couple of weeks ago and seeing a film like that with an audience is such a different experience than watching it in your home. Okay, we've got great big screens, we've got great big sound systems, but but that shared experience, that shared gasp or laugh or, or whatever it might be, you can't replicate that. And I and I hope that that collective emotional response can be the heart of what actually pulls people back in for spectacle. Of course, we've got you know the the Star Wars universe, we have the the, the Marvel universe doing that for us. We've got Dune 2, we've got these wonderful spectacles. Um, but something can also be epic emotionally um, or, or just such a brilliant, unique collective emotional experience um, that you we want to go out and, and be able to talk about that afterwards um, over a drink or whatever it may be. And I hope that films like The Menu, because it is such a fun ride um, and such a ride, a great fun ride to have with a few hundred other people in the room at the same time. I hope that actually people will feel that it's worth it for that kind of film. Mark, as a moviegoer, uh, what, are, what have been some of the most important uh movie going uh destinations for you either growing up or now living in i'm not sure if you live in the u.s but if you do wherever you're living what are those uh movie theaters that you always relate to or have a connection to uh, i always go to the small ones i, I the local <laughs> fleet but where i grew up in this little town in south devon in england the alexandra theater which fantastically is still going somehow um and it really was a flea pit but the magic of going there you know i'm sure that's the same for almost any director that you talk to that that that's what got me into it and got me totally hooked on the magic of it. Um, in the States, the Cobble Hill Cinema down the road, I love it. It's a little neighbourhood theatre, um, which uh, you can just kind of, it emanates love of film. Um, I go up to Woodstock a lot upstate and uh, the, the little Woodstock theatre that I saw note there, as I said earlier, a couple of weeks ago, and it was such a joy to sit in there. Yeah, it feels like a room where magic can happen. I know that's a whole the old cliche, but I don't know how else to say it. it it's a beautiful space to be in. Um, when I was in LA, when I lived there, it was always the Arc Light, you know, which is like this temple of, of cinema, uh, to me, the greatest cinema in the world. Um, and, uh, and And I just can't, wait until it reopens and pray that it does um that that was it just going in there just as soon as you go through the doors i've got a tingle of anticipation uh what would you tell our listeners and our readers in the exhibition industry uh concerning about the release of the menu in their theaters uh the the the, the menu i hope brings together everything that i love about cinema it's a brilliant collective 
ride for for a wide audience the the performances are fantastic it's got this brilliant company of actors it's beautifully shot it sounds amazing the, the cinematography the soundtrack is fantastic from colin stetson did a brilliant soundtrack it's everything that i want in, in, in cinema it's this collective ride that is a, you never know what's coming out and again it's a terrible cliche but it really is a, it's a cinematic roller coaster and what's more fun than that with a bag of popcorn and that was Mark Millard, the director of The Menu from Searchlight Pictures, coming out of theaters on November 18th. Thanks again to Mark, and thanks again to our co-hosts, Rebecca Polly and Sean Robbins. Don't forget to come back next week for another episode of the Box Office Podcast, where we'll be talking to Ray Nutt, the CEO of Fathom Events, as he talks to us about event cinema in 2022 and the upcoming debut of The Chosen. Available to theaters through Fathom Events. That's coming up on next week's episode. Rebecca, Sean, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you again to our audience. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration with Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes out every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe. And we'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.